We want to welcome those that are joining us from the web stream as well. Glad to have you with us as we kind of unite in one spirit. And that spirit is one of trust in the Lord our God. Uh, regardless of what happens outside, crisis or calm, we look to him for our guidance. And uh, I was thinking this last week, Adam, about a sermon that you brought last week. Just a little, little part that you brought out. The children of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, and how um, because of their complaints, they were cursed with snakes. I don't know if anybody here is afraid of snakes. Anybody? A little bit of fear of snakes. Um, and so this was like devastating them. And of course, there would, would have been chaos at the time. But God instructed Moses to lift up a, a bronze snake for anyone who looked at it, and they were saved. God didn't remove the snakes out of their lives. He just gave them this to look to. And it was for faith and trust in him. I thought, too, of a, of a fear of water. My wife is deathly afraid of water, swimming. Anybody else here afraid of water? How about if it's in a, in a terrible storm, you're out swimming? Peter, in the New Testament, was one who Jesus allowed him to walk on water, right? And as soon as he got his eyes off of Jesus and saw the storms around him, uh, kind of lost hope and lost faith. Uh, but once he, again, returned his gaze to Jesus, uh, we just want to make sure that we keep our eyes on him. Calmer crisis, we want to uh, rely on fact and uh, faith and not fear or fantasy. So um, I'd like for us to um, uh, stand, if you would, as we read um, in Luke 24 this morning. Luke 24, verses 44 through 49. We read this. This is he, this is Jesus. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You're a witness of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Let's uh, pray, and then we'll have Adam come up and deliver the word. God, we are grateful to you um, just for your providence towards us, Lord, for your grace, that even in uh, the chaos that may surround us, we still have a calm and a peace that comes from you and from a trust in you. So I, I pray, God, that you would work in our hearts, help us to kind of set aside um, what may be going on in our own lives, uh, just the outside world, uh, for just a few moments here as we look into your word and then be able to use what you, you share with us today to apply to our lives today. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your love to us, and we love you, Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much, Mark, for doing that. <clears throat> I want to thank Mark uh, and the other elders of FBN for just their wisdom and prayerful uh, leadership um, as we um, tried to decide how to <laughs> minister to people uh, in this day and age. Um, and so um, with everything going on, just grateful for you guys, grateful for your leadership there. And uh, continue, if you're, if you're here, if you're part of our, our communication process and everything, we want you to know that you can trust our, our leadership uh, to do um, um, prayerfully uh, the best that they can uh, to not feed the panic, but also to be good stewards of you all, to be good stewards of this place, um, and to uh, take it as seriously as we should. 
And so um, just stay tuned. I know you guys have a bulletin in front of you. Um, if you're a guest, um, let us know. We'd love to get to know you better. Fill out uh, that side piece there. Everything else is tentative. Okay, we'll just keep you posted um, because we're not 100% uh, sure uh, what all, uh, uh, what the direction is going to be. We have a, an elders meeting tomorrow morning and we'll discuss that and uh, get, get communication out to you. Um, if you need uh, to give us your number or your email so that we can add you to our communication list so, you are, so that you know, uh, please uh, uh, let us know that so we can get you on that loop. Uh, and outside of that, like Mark said, we're going to trust the Lord, right? Uh, by the way, everything's okay. Right? Everything is, is fine. I know it's not going to feel that way, especially with a lot of kids in this room. And we've made some, some calls, you know, to, uh, to accommodate. But it, it, it's really going to be fine. The Lord has given us a confidence. And uh, I tell you what, if, if anything is revealing about just kind of the, the trust and confidence level of our nation, I mean, put a pandemic in the middle of it and you'll see uh, where people put their hope right? Uh, what an opportunity it is for the church uh, to lean into the Lord all the more, uh, to use this as an opportunity to be salt and light to this world, um, and to overtly express our confidence and trust uh, in our Creator and in our God and in our Savior. And so that's what we want to do. That's what we want to uh, promote. Stay tuned, and we'll keep you informed. Does that sound good? Okay, well, if not, we're moving forward anyways, okay? Because I'm preaching and you're not, and so uh, we're going to keep going. Um, we are going to go into the scriptures this morning, into Luke uh, chapter 24. Um, this is where our base passage is going to be. Um, it's really going to open up for us a, a further discussion as we look um, and kind of survey the historical and prophetic books uh, this morning. So I'm excited to have this time with you. First service was wonderful. A lot of people came, uh, more than I thought, to be honest. And so uh, once again, uh, you guys have come through. Thank you uh, for, what you, uh, uh, for, what your, for your devotion to the Lord, really. So uh, last week I began uh, the sermon by describing why I'm thankful for my lung disease because of how God used it to introduce me to my children. If you don't understand that connection, you can go back and listen to the fi first five minutes uh, of that sermon and you'll get it. But I feel like that could be considered like one of those Facebook quotes that everybody's like, oh, Adam's life is so perfect, he's so righteous, he's got a lung disease, but he's so thankful for it, you know? So I, let me just like, let me just bring some balance to everything, okay? Um, so last week, my six-year-old told me she hated me at bedtime. So my life's not perfect, okay? Uh, that, there, there's plenty of balance, just in case, you know, you thought that last week. Let me balance it out. Uh, she said that she hated me. I don't think she's in this room right now, so that's, that's good. Or she might be, and I can't see her. I don't know. She is six, so she's a little person. Um, so she said she hated me. Um, I know she was just frustrated at the law of bedtime. I totally get that, right? That she actually doesn't wish that I were dead or gone or that she truly hates me. She doesn't even understand the word completely. Even knowing that, though, I wanted to explode like an atomic bomb, right? Because, you, you know, what are your thoughts? You, you've probably been in this place. What are your thoughts when your kid says something like that? Like, don't you even know? Right? How disrespectful that is of you to, to tell me that, right? After, uh, oh, you know, everything that it takes to feed you and to keep you healthy and, and all of that good stuff. I know Kenzie does 90% of it, but I support her in that. And so, don't you know, like, what goes into keeping you alive and well and clean and all of that stuff. And so, I, I started in that way. I came out pretty heavy-handed, right? Um, not literally, but just heavy you know, heavy toned, um, and then it eventually turned into a pretty good teaching moment, and I hope that the start of it didn't ruin the end of it, because it ended pretty well, right? But the point is this, 
I know she didn't mean it. I know she didn't understand it. But still, the law is there. We have a firm law of bedtime, right? You have to abide by it because every piece of scientific and spiritual and physiological and medical health research and wisdom will tell you that sleep is good. You have to have it. It is smart to make it a routine, to be firm about it, to almost treat it as law. And so my kids don't always like the law of bedtime, even though it is a law for flourishing, to give life. It is a law for her health and for her benefit. But when it contradicts what she wants in the moment, it feels like death to her, right? And isn't it funny that, um, by the way, if you've never had that relationship with your kids, if they never told you that, um, praise the Lord. You know what I mean? Uh, but I even remember as a kid, uh, me telling my dad that, right? So it's a common uh, experience. And I also know um, that we tell God that. Not that we hate him, but that his law is insufficient. And that what he means, his boundaries for our life, his word, is meant for life. It's meant for flourishing. But we look at it and think, well, I'm not satisfied in this. I want to do my thing. God's way is not enough for us. And listen, if I had to bottle up, I'm going to try to bottle up the whole Old Testament quite a bit this morning. That's one of the ways you can bottle it up. God wasn't enough for his people. God wasn't enough for his people. And they chose otherwise, and they suffered the consequences, right? But I want to begin this morning with just that question, because this is where we're going to begin and where we're going to end. Do you trust God? doesn't sound like a profound question, but it has profound implications, and it's a question many of you wrestle with, I'm sure. Do you trust God? Do you trust that his way is better than your way, that his definition of life is better than your definition of life? Do we trust that obedience to his word is actually better for us, even when it conflicts with our immediate desires? Do we trust this? Do we live as though we trust this? And I want that question to just kind of uh, resonate in your hearts throughout the entire morning. And if you don't even move past that question, I praise the Lord that you would wrestle with that question for the next two hours, right, as we're together. I'm just kidding. It's not going to take that long. But still, think about that question, and we're going to come back to that, okay? But for now, what we're going to do is I just want to remind you what we're attempting to do through this little mini-series. Uh, whether it lasts or, or doesn't, we, we don't know. Everything's tentative, even the preaching plan, honestly. So um, we're going to get through it this week. But what we're trying to do is look at the Old Testament scriptures with a discernment um, that it is authoritative in our lives uh, to some degree. But we need to read it with our gospel lenses on. We need to read it with our gospel lenses on, and that's what Luke 24 kind of helps us do. In verse 44, what we have, this is following the road to Emmaus where Jesus appears to these disciples, um, and he gets in this uh, conversation with them, and then he opens up Moses and the prophets and begins to tell them how all of the Old Testament points to him, right? And then he does this later again in verse 44 where he's talking to the apostles and the disciples. And he says this, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, right? That's what we're trying to do in this series to open our minds so that we can understand the scriptures and understand how Jesus is in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the historical books, uh, the uh, poetic books. Jesus is in it all. 
And wouldn't that be awesome to have him open our minds to, these, to this truth and this reality? It goes on to say that this is what was written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Listen, when our minds are opened with the scriptures, what will happen inevitably is that we will go as ones who are sent and share the good news of Jesus with people. Right? That's the impact that the scriptures have. It was never meant to, for just knowing. It was meant for sending. And when you see Jesus, as we were talking about last week, when you see Jesus in the entire narrative and story of the scriptures, you should go as one who is sent with hearts burning, right? Hearts burning uh, uh, to live out his kingdom, to live out his word. Um, and so that is our prayer and hope through this study. Right, that we start with Jesus, we start with the gospel, and then we move back through the Old Testament, even through the historical and prophetic books that we're looking at this morning. So here's what it means to have your gospel lenses on. Right? First, it's this. God is almighty, God is sovereign, and it's the same God in the Old Testament as, as the New Testament. He's the same one, unchanging, consistent. And we think, well, how can that be? That's because the second part of this gospel ends is this. Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God. So what we experience now in New Testament times is dramatically different than what was experienced in Old Testament times. Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God on the cross so that anyone who believes in his name will, will not have to perish but have eternal life. Jesus has changed the game by what he endured on the cross. Right? Romans chapter 7 verse 6 says, But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. This is what has been afforded us by the grace of Christ. We are no longer bound to the law, but we are bound by his spirit. We live in the freedom of his spirit. With this lens, we look back at the Old Testament. We see God's almighty work. We see his holiness on display, his constant care for his people. And ultimately what we can see is, is we can understand better what Christ has afforded us on the cross. And what he still wants to give us now as his people, which is flourishing and life and life to the full. This is what he wants for us. Right? Last week we used this model of uh, power, as in God's sovereign power. Promise, as in God's promised relationship with his people. Intimacy. Um, principle. Uh, there are still principles for living that can be found in the Old Testament. And then the picture, as in the picture of Jesus Christ that we see throughout the Old Testament. This was kind of our model for understanding why uh, uh, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures are still applicable and authoritative in our lives. So we're still going to use that this week. We're going to change the order a little bit, but we're going to use that this week as well. But first I want to do this. I want to give you kind of an overview of what we're talking about today, because what we're talking about is a uh, just over half of all of the books in the Old Testament we're trying to summarize today in the historical books and the prophetic books. And so we're going to throw this graph up uh, for you on, uh, on the screen. And this is probably the easiest one that I've ever used. Uh, a simple Google search will take you to this, but it is so easy to navigate. Have you ever tried to find a Bible-based graph Right? Usually it's like decorated with like every color and, and every font and all that. It's just so hard to navigate. This is quite simple though for you to see the chronological layout of the Old Testament. Last week we looked at Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. You see them at the start and where the overlap is in the timeline. This week we're looking at Joshua all the way through Nehemiah, the rest 
uh, of the spectrum. Next week, uh, hopefully, Lord willing, Brandon's going to cover um, those uh, bottom books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the wisdom and poetic books, right? So what we're doing today is we're looking at the historical, starting with Joshua, right? All the way back in the conquests is what we call it, when God uh, leads his people into the promised land and gives his people all they need to conquer the land. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. There's this conquest. And then you move ahead, and you see how First and Samuel, all the way through Second Kings, uh, and then the Chronicles, how they all overlap, right? Just so you know where you're at when you're reading Scripture. And then you see underneath 2 Chronicles, there's this Israel and Judah split. It's a, massive, uh, uh, a massively important time in Israelite history when there is a, an actual divide in the people. And the reconciliation still has not fully happened there. Uh, but Solomon's son and Solomon's servant uh, have a feud, and as a result, the nation splits in two, and it never recovers and there was so much strength and so much unity lost in that. And it led to the captivity where Israel is taken captive by Assyria. And then Judah is taken captive by Babylon. And so then we read uh, in Daniel and Ezekiel about what was going on during this captivity in Babylon. Right? So you have the conquest to the division, to the captivity, and then to the return where Ezra, Nehemiah, um, and then you see some of those prophetic books and Esther in there where it records uh, the time when they are trying to make their way back uh, to the promised land uh, to restore worship and to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the wall. That's the his history of those people, right? That leads us all the way up to a few hundred years before the New Testament when Jesus comes onto the scene. Now, simultaneously with all of those historical books is the prophetic books. In the very top tier, you see the names of the prophets. And it kind of tells you, right, where um, it was uh, the, those two, Amos and Hosea, were written to the north. That's the north kingdom. So they were written towards Israel. Uh, the south were written towards Judah. Uh, it tells you what they were writing to, and it tells you the timeline. You, so you see the overlaps. So the whole time you're tracking through the historical books, there's these prophets that are trying to address God's people in that context. So one of the ways to look at it is this. There's this timeline uh, of historical books that covers physical events, circumstances, the people, right? The kings and, and all the people at play. The poetic books gives you a glimpse into the spiritual state of the people during that time, right? It's kind of like now, honestly, with the virus and everything going on, you see the circumstances at play and every single political leader wants to throw out their, their set of, of restrictions and that kind of stuff. There's a lot of stuff happening, but what's being revealed is the spiritual state of people, isn't it? There's panic, right? It's like I said before, it's kind of revealing of, of where our world's hope and trust is placed, Right? So you see the circumstances going on, but you also see the spiritual state of, of people. And that's kind of what we see in the historical and prophetic books. All right. Now you can tell, I mean, history and prophecy, these books overlap with each other. And you'll see different characters at play and all that kind of stuff. The best way to know it fully is to just read it uh, and to see how they align with each other. But listen, there's one, uh, one issue that I want to bring to light that kind of helps me think about all this. And it's the relationship between ruler and righteousness. Ruler and righteousness, right? If you go through Old Testament history, man, the kings, there's not many good things going on with the kings, the rulers of God's people, right? You see the names of David and Solomon up there. They had good moments, uh, but even they had really, really weak moments too. Right? There's a reason for all this, by the way. But when you have a righteous ruler... 
things usually go well. God uses that. Even now, things go well, right? When you have an unrighteous ruler, then this rule really put your own righteousness to the test. Because they'll put you in circumstances that you have to, which, you know, choose the greater evil or choose the lesser good, greater good. You know, you, you're put in these weird situations and people are making calls on your life and you're trying to figure out, do I follow this and respect that while I'm trusting and, and ultimately following the Lord? Like, how do I navigate all of this, right? And I want to just give you something that I think the kings or, or the Old Testament struggled with, the Old Testament people struggled with, and it's one that we struggle with today. And it's simply this question, who's your king? But think about it, who, who is your king? Who is the one that you fear the most? Romans chapter 13 verse 1 says, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. God is chief, God is top tier, God is king, God is ruler. Anybody else who calls himself a ruler is only there because God let it be so. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 17, We honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. We fear and respect our leaders, or we, we, we honor and we respect our leaders. We fear God. We have one king, and we submit to him, and he is ruler. He is king. Nothing else is. And whenever we replace him with other things, our confidence is shaken. Our foundation uh, is weakened, whether that be another person, whether that be an illness, whether that be whatever it is. When we put that in place of God, we begin to shake but when God's king, nothing can tear you down. So is God king of your life? Well, listen, the Old Testament people, they made a decision. They decided to replace God as their king in a very literal sense. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. So all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel. Samuel is kind of known as the last judge of the Old Testament came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all of the other nations have. It's never usually a great sign when God's people want to just do what everybody else is doing. But when they said, Give us the king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And I tell you what, that reality kind of sets the tone for the rest of their history. They replaced God with human people. It never worked out, hardly ever. And the result was division. The result was captivity. The result was that they have now just become kind of dissolved into the rest of humanity. This was never God's design for his collective people of Israel this was not his design, but this is what has happened. But listen, it was not without effort from God, was it? He sent prophets to remind these people repeatedly, turn back to God, turn back to God, turn back to him in righteousness and be delivered from this self-induced judgment that's coming your way. He gave them chance after chance after chance. And every time he sent a prophet, they were ridiculed, uh, they were beaten, some of them were tortured and, and, and brutally murdered by God's people. That's how they responded to this message from the Lord. They treated God's word like death, and as a result, they experienced actual death, which is still true today, isn't it? When we treat God's word like death, we find ourselves in worse places than we were before. But their message was this, God is your ruler, God is your king, turn back to him in righteousness. So I want to use these two words to talk about God's power as we follow along 
with this kind of model that we've been using to help us discern the Old Testament. We'll start with the word rule. God is the one in charge. He's the ruler. So we see God's power in his rule in his people. God's power is seen in the Old Testament through his rule and reign over his people. See, in the books of the law, God was doing amazing things, wasn't he? Bringing them out of Egypt, doing all this wonderful stuff, establishing community and worship and holiness and victory. And his power was well known and experienced. His people weren't perfect. They were still disobedient. They were still very whiny. But they were able to progress because they were unsettled, right? They didn't have a home. They were brought out of Egypt. That wasn't any place to settle. They were in the wilderness. They never had a home. And so they, they were unsettled. And so God was able to still use that unsettling to bring them, uh, to progress them, to move them forward despite their disobedience. It was not until they got settled that they'd said, all right, we don't want you anymore, God. We want something different. Right? You see the connection there? And so they got settled and they basically said, God, we want an actual king. We don't want you to be our king anymore. And God said, okay. Is that hard for you to wrestle with? God, knowing how this was going to work out for his people, said, okay. One of the ways that God reminds people of his power sometimes is by letting them experience life without it. One of the ways God reminds people of his power sometimes is by letting them experience life without it. For example, my daughter just got some roller skates. Um, And so one of the ways that I I help her is I'll hold her hand and she'll kind of like, you know, do that like running motion in place around the driveway. Um, I know how much I'm helping her and supporting her. She feels like she's killing it, right? And so imagine I said, hey, or imagine she said, dad, I don't need it anymore. Right? Let go. I got this. And I said, no, that's not wise. I, I, under, I know that I'm holding you up. I'm supporting you. You can't, you can't do this on your own. And she said, I got this. And so I'll say, okay, what's going to happen? I mean, she might cruise for, for a minute, but inevitably, at some point in time, her elbow is going to be bleeding. Right? And she'll realize, when that happens, how much I was actually supporting her, how much power I was actually exerting on her behalf. Sometimes God removes it so that we're reminded of it and we come back to it. This is true in the scriptures too, right? Romans chapter 1 verse 28. Because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. Basically, they said, we're not going to acknowledge God anymore. We want to do what's not right. And so God said, okay, I deliver you to your way of thinking. And they experienced what you would experience from that. We do this now, right? We, uh, when we give the worship and devotion of our lives to other things in which we say to God, we got this, we don't need you, and he says, okay. And inevitably, something's going to happen. Something in your life is going to happen that's going to bring you back to his feet. It's better to just stay in that constant place of understanding that he is powerful and he has complete authority and we are not ever above it and we do not ever not need it. We always need it. How about righteousness? Talked about his rule, but we also see his power in his righteousness, right? Righteousness begins in reverence for God's rule. Righteousness begins in reverence for God's rule. And this is where the prophetic books come in. Because their constant attempt was to remind people to come back to God in righteousness. To turn back. To turn away from their sinful ways and to come back to God. 
So he sent men, he sent these prophets. And as we discussed earlier, the essence of this message from the prophets was for life, was for uh, flourishing. But it conflicted with their sinful desires, and so for them, it felt like death, and they did not repent, they did not turn. So we see God's power in his rule, in his righteousness. There's another sidebar here that I think we need to acknowledge because um, it is the historical books, and there's a lot of people with a lot of questions about this book. And so another piece of his power that I would like to acknowledge is at the very beginning of the historical narrative, you have this time in Jewish history called the conquests. It's when God's people came into the land, and and they basically began uh, um, taking over. City after city after city, God was giving these cities into their hands, and God was delivering these people, and God actually commanded that his people would go in and dominate, right? And a lot of people wrestle with this because they read it as if it was the first set of world wars that were happening. They think of genocide and annihilation. This is how people read uh, that situation, Listen, there's a lot uh, that we could talk about with this, and I wish we had more time, but I want to give you the one that I think rises to the top to help you think about God's power in this way. And it's simply this. uh, Holiness requires sacrifice. Holiness requires sacrifice. That's exactly what Jesus means when he says, if your eye causes you to sin or if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, gouge it out. The point being this. His holiness is serious, and if there's anything that's leading you away from that, then you need to make some sacrifices, even if it hurts a little bit, to pursue him. In Hebrews, it talks about uh, not, uh, not being willing to shed any blood over sin. But as believers in Christ who take holiness seri- seriously, we've got to be able to make sacrifices for the sake of holiness. Holiness is something God deeply, deeply cherish- cherishes. It is his nature, and it's what he wants for his people. He takes worship seriously. He knew the paganism uh, among the land would infect his own people, and so God allowed for the expulsion of the land, expulsion of the people from the land, not annihilation, not genocide, expulsion as a matter of holiness. There's a professor in Belfast, Ireland by the name of Dr. Paul Coulter who wrote probably the best article I've ever read in regards to the Old Testament conquests. And he did the math. Listen to this. He said the average population of each walled city uh, that we read about in Joshua when all of this happened was approximately one to 3,000 people, some as few as 700 people. One to 3,000 people. We read about 31 cities who are uh, uh, taken by God's people at God's command. So even if you, if you take God's, uh, or if you take that number 70, uh, sorry, if you take that number 1 to 3,000 times 31 cities, what we're looking at at the max is about 70,000 people on average, 70,000 people. That's who we're reading about, okay? So the number probably wasn't even that high because people knew about God's people and many people fled their cities in time. But let's just assume all 70,000 people were killed by the armies of the Lord. What we're talking about is still 3.5% of the whole land of the Canaanites. The whole land, it was a massive piece of property. And so what we're talking, 70,000 people is about 3.5% of all of the land, which means that God allowed for a way for only 3.5% to have to suffer the consequences so that the whole land could be given to his people. And we read it and we think genocide, annihilation, really this is an act of grace because it could have been far worse. Here's a little perspective for you. Imagine All right, the U.S. population has 330 million people. 
330 million. So what's three and a half percent of that? It's about 11 and a half million, which is the population of Wisconsin and Minnesota combined. All right. Imagine Canada said, you know what? It's time for us to take over the U.S. And so they come in their canoes, you know, they come across the Great Lakes and they come and they take over Minnesota and then they take over Wisconsin, right? They start to take over. And then the, after they conquer Minnesota and Wisconsin, the U.S. says, we're out. We can, there's nothing for us to do here. They've obviously conquered the whole land, right? Of course not. Texas alone could go up there and take care of it, right? We have 9 million people in New York alone. Like, there's no way that that would happen unless God's power was behind it. That would change the game. See, it, it, the, we read about it from their perspective, and it feels like chaos and catastrophe. But you read about it from an overall view, and you see God's hands on it, hands of grace for the Israelites and for the Canaanites. It's pretty awesome, right? And listen to this, too. See, God called this land holy. And so if you're going to dwell in the land, you need to be in his holiness, whatever that looked like for them, right? The Old Testament people, the Canaanites, obviously weren't there. But listen, the rule applied to his own people, too. Listen to Leviticus chapter 18, uh, verses 24 through 28. Do not defile yourselves by any of these practices, for the nations I am driving out before you have defiled themselves by all these things. Driving out, expulsion, that was the point. The land has become defiled, so I am punishing it for its iniquity, and the land will vomit out its inhabitants. But you are to keep my statutes and ordinances. You must not commit any of these detestable acts, not the native or the alien who resides among you. For the people who are in the land prior to you have committed all of these detestable acts, and the land has become defiled. If you defile the land, it will vomit you out, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Right? This land is holy. They're not living up to it. And if you don't live it up to it, I'm going to vomit you out as well. And that's exactly what happened because they gave in to the detestable practices of the people around them. Holiness was the point. It was not a personal vendetta. It was not a racial issue. Holiness was the point. Speaking of racial issues, there were 160,000 deaths in the Civil War. 160,000. A war in which many of us would look back and say it was probably worth it. I don't know where you're at on that issue, but it seemed to have a righteous cause, right? Human equality is a pretty important thing. Was it avoidable? Probably, but people are people, and so it probably wasn't at the same time. But is God's holiness not worth the same amount of sacrifice, if not more, than even the battle for human equality? The answer is no, it's not worth the same. It's worth so much more, so much more. This helps us as we move. Um, We're going to move towards the end now as we go from power, and we're going to start talking about principles, okay? Principles. And use this idea of holiness. Keep that in your head because when it comes to principles for living, the overwhelming one is to be free from idolatry, to replace God with no one, to keep God in his rightful place as king over your life, right? In the Old Testament and even now, we see idolatry in many forms. We see it in the form of false gods, uh, maybe you're not carving into a piece of wood and worshiping it like many people did back in the day, but you, your TV, you know, and um, um, your affection for soccer kind of is the same thing, right? Honestly, it's just a matter of where, where's your devotion, and if it's misplaced, and if other things are getting it more than God, then this is idolatry. That's, that's it. 
There's also false teachings, very present in our day, just as it was back then. Romans chapter 1, verse 25 says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worship and served what has been created instead of the creator who is to be praised forever. Amen. So it's false gods, false teachings, or it's just self, and this one's prevalent, right? It's the same stuff now as it has been then. It's kind of eternal, right? It's power and wealth and body image and reputation and sex and stress relief and on and on and on it goes. All of the things that we submit our worship and devotion to in regards to ourselves, to where we become the idol, and God takes the hit as a result. Listen, idolatry is a New Testament issue and an Old Testament issue. And in the Old Testament, we have the beauty, not necessarily the beauty, but the privilege of seeing how important idolatry is to God. He is a jealous God who, is, who takes it so seriously that we read about what we read about in the Old Testament. Chaos, horror at some times. This is how important holiness and idolatry is to God. We see how it makes God feel. And then at the cross, all of these feelings are unleashed upon Jesus Christ. At the cross, we see how God feels about idolatry. We see how, 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 how God feels about sin. Right? This is, this is how it makes God feel. And he's still offended by it, just like he always has been. It's just that his wrath has been unleashed on Jesus already. Praise God for us, right? But just because Christ has paid for our crime doesn't mean we get to recommit the crime. So in the Old Testament, we see situations like when God's people built a golden calf, right? Moses was gone for a few days. They didn't know what to do. And so they start building a golden calf, and they start worshiping it. And we as New Testament Christians think, how stupid are they, right? What were they doing? Like, Moses was only gone for a minute. Didn't they just see everything that God did? And now they're starting, starting to worship just a created thing. What are they doing? Right? And we think, what a stupid idol. What a stupid thing to do. And we think somehow it's more stupid than uh, our idols of the Marvel Universe and the cults and basketball and Facebook. And you got to understand, that's really funny. It's the same stuff. It's the same stuff, and he's still just as, as offended by it now as he was then. It's the same. It's just as stupid as it was then. God is still offended by these things, and yet we remain because Christ paid the price. I want to end our time with that thought of what Jesus did on the cross. Right, Because all of these things, the promise and the picture, these are satisfied in Jesus. Let me tell you about uh, 2 Samuel. This was written 1,000 years before Jesus. 1,000 years before Jesus. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, this is God talking to David, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him, as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Is that not overtly a Jesus passage? All the way at the start uh, of the historical uh, narrative of the, uh, of the Old Testament people. How about 600 years before Jesus? Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 23. 
Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will raise up a righteous branch for David. That's Jesus, comes from the line of David. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. See, the Lord was going to be the great reconciler of, of, of the Jews. And he is the one. He is the righteous branch that will come and he will administer justice. He will be king and he will be filled with with righteousness. This is Jesus Christ. He is the king. It is his kingdom that will be established, and he is going to fill it with righteousness, and even now he can be your righteousness. Because the reality is, is we don't deserve any of this stuff, and if he didn't do what he did, then we wouldn't have any of this stuff. But Romans chapter 3 says this, apart from the law, The righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. Curious where your hope for redemption is this morning. Where is your hope for redemption What idols do you put your devotion and worship into, thinking that they're going to give you something that God can't? What do you look for for righteousness apart from the righteousness that comes from Christ? The main problem, one of the main problems in the Old Testament scriptures is simply that God was not enough for his people. We know he was, but in their minds, God's way was not enough. And I'm curious, do you trust today that God is enough Is he enough for you? Is obedience to him the best for you? Do you trust these things? Do you trust God's way in your worship and in your devotion and your investment of time and money and energy and resources and your ability and your worldview and your body image and your stress and your success and your desires for community and relationship and sex and approval and on and on and on? We could go Do you trust that God's way in those things is better than your way or any other way? And by the way, the way is clearly expressed in this. Do you trust that this is better for you, more life-giving for you than your own wisdom, than your own pursuits and desires? Do you trust it? And if you do, praise God, do you live like that? Do you live like that? Most people are scraping for life in all of these areas, not realizing that they're digging their own grave. And the very sad reality is that they're going to scrape and scrape and scrape until they're at the feet of Jesus and realize that they have been digging their own grave. Listen, this is where the church comes in. God is going to be king. He is our king. He is our confidence. He is everything that we need. And in times of turmoil, including the one we're in now, we're going to lift him high. We're going to have a confidence and trust in him that cannot be shaken So that when people see it, see us, and interact with us, they're overtly going to know that God is is king of our lives and he can be king of theirs. When you understand the scriptures, it should make you one who is sent into this world to declare Jesus Christ to people who so desperately need him. And we are at a wonderful time to do that, aren't we? So I pray that this ministry, this FBN, this church, this local body will be that for this community, will be that for this town that we will be uh, bright lights uh, for Jesus Christ and that people will see the confidence that could be had in Jesus Christ. They'll quit scraping for their own graves and they'll start to understand that God's way is best. In him there is life. It would be fun to baptize some more people 
while all of this is going on, wouldn't it? Right? And forever they'll know coronavirus as the thing God used to bring them to saving faith. That'd be cool. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we're grateful for your care, for your love, for your tenderness to us, God, as we open the scriptures, as we seek to understand you better through them. God, would you be with us now as we have a time of just reflection? Um, grateful, so grateful for uh, just the way that you've provided for today. We pray for wisdom as we go forward. Uh, in any case, God, would you give us all we need to live vibrantly for you in this community with the confidence and assurance that you are our righteousness and you are our ruler. You are our king. God, would you let us believe it and would you let us live like it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.